Hebrews chapter 3. And the text for this morning will be verses 6 to verse 11. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 6 to 11. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for forty years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said they always go astray in their heart, and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we do take refuge in you and Christ alone. How blessed are all those who take refuge in him that is in the Son of God. And as we come now to the word of Christ, Lord, we pray that your spirit would move mightily within us through your word, that you would be exalted, Lord. Lord, we give you the praise and we thank you for Christ's sake. Amen. Have you ever known someone that had experienced God in what seemed to be a great way and yet fell away from the faith? Have you ever been aware or known someone that at least from the outside, it would appear that they had a great experience or movement of the work of God in their life, and yet after some time, they fell away from the faith. There was a man I knew that taught Greek, New Testament Greek, at Grace Theological Seminary, which in the past was a great seminary, and he became an atheist. I know of a student that graduated from Master's Seminary, and he fell away from the faith. I can think of now of a pastor that I think all of you here are aware of. His brother used to attend our church some years ago, and he was a pastor, and he's written books, and he's fallen away from the faith. He says that he's no longer a Christian. And he wrote books on how not to date the church and other books like that. And yet he would say now he's not a believer. What happened? We all know of of individuals that have deserted Christ to some degree and left the faith. They've drifted away. Was it the parents' fault? Was it the culture's fault? Sometimes if you talk to to these individuals, there could be some sort of tragedy. Maybe one of their children died. Maybe a loved one had cancer. Maybe somebody falsely accused them and they went through a, a horrible time in life. And how could God do this to me? And so they might say for that reason they've drifted away from Christ. 
But the fact of the matter is that when we look at Scripture, though all of those reasons, all of those excuses may have some type of support for why they did what they did, foundationally it's because their heart was wrong. Their heart wasn't right with God. Their heart wasn't right with Christ. It was a heart issue. And that's even what we see in today's passage in chapter 3, verse 7. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Drifting away from Jesus Christ is a hard issue. Therefore, take care of your heart. And somebody can seem to have great experiences with God and yet not truly even be saved. Can you think of somebody in the Bible that had great experiences with God and even it seems did miracles and yet didn't even know God? Can you think of anybody? I can think at least of two people. I can think of even a prophet in the Old Testament, Balaam. He was a type of a prophet. God spoke through him. And yet he wasn't even saved. Who who in the New Testament was even sent out with authority and yet didn't even know Jesus Christ? He represented Jesus Christ, but in the end, he betrayed him. Of course, that would be Judas. That is, just because people have some type of outward, external experience with God that may even move them for a time, doesn't mean that they are necessarily saved. And that is part of the message of the book of Hebrews. And even what we see here in this passage, chapter 3, verse 1, all the way to chapter 4, verse 13. Drifting away from Christ is a hard issue, therefore take care of the heart. And we've given two treatments so far. We said, how do you take care of your heart? First, by developing a biblical self-image. We saw that in verse 1 of chapter 3. Then second, we said, take care of your heart by thinking clearly about Jesus. You can see that in chapter 3, verse 1, where it says, consider Jesus. And now a third treatment, take care of your heart by prioritizing a gospel walk with God more than a Godward external experiences. I'll say it again. Prioritize a, a simple sincere gospel walk with God more than some type of tremendous, incredible experience at the mountaintop that you have with God. Have you ever had what you might call a mountaintop experience with God? Have you ever used that phrase? I can remember... maybe 30 years ago now, there's a group of us and we were up in Fraser Park in the Sierras. And it was a, a ministry group. There was about 80 of us and there was a pastor that was with us of a fellowship group. And we 
played chorus music for about maybe 30 minutes. And you could, in a sense, tell that God's spirit was moving. It seemed because people began to weep. And then the singing didn't stop. The singing went on for a long time. It was planned to end, but the singing kept going. And then at the end, there was even some testimony and sharing about Christ. And it it, it ended up being a, a great weekend for the Lord. The Lord, it seemed, was working deeply in our hearts. The next day on Monday... I was called to go to a, an office at that church because the pastor that was leading that meeting had fallen. So we were actually at a mountain and God's spirit was moving powerfully, it seemed. Everybody was weeping and everybody was crying and the pastor was leading us. The very next Monday, we had to meet with other men that said that that pastor had fallen. So he was able to lead a congregation of people and to what seemed to be sincere, genuine, deep, authentic, uh, Christ-moving worship that, that humbled us. And yet, there were things in his life which, which obviously he had drifted away from the Lord for some time. Because... There can be a lot of activity. There can be preaching. There can be witnessing. There can be parenting. There can be singing. There can be verbal praising. There can be baptizing. There can be communion going on. There can be visitation going on. But unless the heart of the person is dealt with, then either there's going to be very little growth or that person themselves might not even be saved. It could just all be an act. It could be just wax fruit and not true fruit. Because it wasn't the gospel that was prioritized, but more of the trappings, more of the experience. I'm experiencing the movement and the power of God, and that can be tremendous. And so here in this passage, the Spirit of God is saying, be sure that there is this type of slogging it out in the gospel over uh, prioritized over special, extraordinary experiences with God. You know the idea of slogging, you know, this this plodding kind of like through the 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 mud step by step, and it's hard just have to slog at it day after day going to work all the time without fail and you just work hard and it seems that you know so many people have so many incredible things going on in their life and all these miracles are happening and you're just slogging and slogging and but yet you love Jesus and Jesus loves you it's this slogging and plotting the simple trust in the Lord which is more viable and more precious than, in one sense, 20,000 miracles. You can remind yourself of the book of 1 Corinthians. The Spirit of God says to the church in Corinth, you're not lacking in any gift. You have all the gifts of God. Richly blessed. 
But he also says you're immature. You're like little babies. So we want to be sure that we are prioritizing this simple, slogging it out, plotting, taking daily steps in and for the gospel of Jesus Christ. In one sense, a hard heart loves the, the, the mountaintop experiences of feeling God. But yet that hard heart cannot go through that valley of death where it takes faith. Because it doesn't have faith. It just has some type of experiential feeling. So as we consider this, this third treatment, prioritize the gospel more than this extraordinary, special experiences with God. First, this involves seriously clinging to the gospel with glory. It involves seriously clinging to the gospel, and you should say, with glory. Say it deeply and and mean it. And you see this in verse 6, where it says, that we're his house, we're his people, we belong to Christ, we belong to God, if we hold fast our confidence and boast of our hope firm. Now, the numeric standard has until the end, but the Greek text does not have those three words until the end. They should be in italics in the numeric standard, they're not, but they are not in the New Testament text. It's, they're, they're just not there. We belong to him if we hold fast, if we tightly grab with our confidence in the word boasts idea of glory and the glory of our hope. And you'll find this word hold fast throughout the book of Hebrews. It's even used later in verse 14 where it says, let us hold fast our confession. There is this idea that that which is precious to you, you will hold on tightly and you will not let it go. If somebody gave to you just a, a pelt of diamonds that had, you know, great carrot. What were the, all those C's when I got engaged? I knew all the C's of diamonds, carrot, cut, quality. I don't, know, I don't know what they are, crystal. Suppose they were some of the best diamonds in the world, and somebody just poured them into your hand, and then there was a person on the street that just came up maybe a homeless person, and they said, I want those diamonds. What would you do if they came to your hand? Would you go, oh, yes. Maybe you're very nice and you would. I would say, no, never, never. It would never be. Ten billion people are not going to pry these diamonds out of my hand. It, it, you got to cut off my hand before you pry out those diamonds. That's the idea of here when it says, if we hold fast, it's hold tightly. It's the idea of clinging on to. I can remember, maybe it was about a month and a half ago, I was at Ryan's house, and he has this climbing apparatus uh, in his dining room. And he was up on the climbing apparatus. Have you guys ever climbed any rocks? He was hanging on by his fingertips. Many, many years ago, I climbed near Lisa's parents' house, these rocks. And we were going, we were doing boulders. We weren't that high, but 10 feet was high enough for me. And the edge would just be, just the edge would maybe be that 
that wide. And you could just hold on by your fingers. But even at 10 feet, I did not want to fall. And I, I was just holding on with all of my might until my fingers, you know, they just turned, the, the knuckles were red and then they turned white. And it's just, I don't want to break my ankle. It's just, that's the intensity behind this idea. If we hold fast, then not that that saves us, but then that shows that we are his people and that we belong to God. If you're truly saved, though you're not perfect, there is this dogged determinants that I will have this, I will hold on to this, and I'm never, ever going to let go of my hope. My hope's in the gospel. I'm never, ever, no, I'm never, ever, 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 ever going to let go. Not because I'm so tough, but because it's so precious to me. I'm not going to let go of it. And so when somebody professes Christ, and they do, then they do let go, then they're showing, they're, they're demonstrating that their faith is worthless and they're not really truly in their heart believing that the object of what they said their faith is in is priceless. Rather, there's something else that they are believing has more value. Now, to be more specific of this idea of clinging to the gospel with glory... You could think of it even with this type of of image. If somebody threw a life preserver to you, you fell off the ferry. Maybe you're going to Anderson Island. Maybe there's six-foot waves. There's jellyfish. Maybe there's sharks, and they throw you a life preserver, and that preserver is right there. Would you just kind of maybe just like, you know what? I'm pretty strong, so I'm just going to use my pinky finger. So you just grab it, grab the life preserver with your pinky finger. Is that what would you do? Is that what you would do? No, if that life preserver is there and there's jellyfish and there's sharks and there's waves, you would just, you would embrace that and hold on to that with all your might. Again, that's this picture that's here because if you don't hold on to it, there's danger. You can see in verse 11, they shall not enter my rest. Facing the wrath of God in verse 11, verse 10, I was angry with this generation. Again, chapter 2, verse 3, neglecting a great salvation. And you you might remember that earlier we had talked about with consider Jesus. It, it's the idea of right now consider Jesus because of the grammar. This is the same type of word, same type of tense, same context, same type of of imagery that is drifting away is going to be a dangerous problem. And so right now, you you hold on right now to the gospel, to this hope, with, with everything that I have. Keep looking at this text in verse 6. It says if we hold fast our confidence and the, the boast, the idea of confidence is this boldness with what I say and believe and, and do, it's not this type of confidence that's in me, because if you look at the text, it's this confidence of our hope. We'll talk about hope in a moment. Confidence is another way to say trust, but it's 
more also of this imagery of boldness. I'm going to do something. You know, I'm, I'm going to hang on to this and I'm, there's going to be appropriate action because I'm confident. I, I'm bold with what I'm believing. And then even if you keep looking at the text, it says uh, our hope, I'm sorry, uh, the boast, and it's it, these words actually are precious. If you could translate it with this type of sentence, if we hold fast the confidence and the boast of the hope, you could translate it that way. It'd be a little bit an, an awkward. It would be awkward, but you could translate it that way. There is the confidence that I have. There is the the boast, and the word boast is also a word that means glory. The the glory, what I glory in, what I have confidence in, is this hope. What is this hope? What am I glorying in? What am I delighting in? What am I valuing above all things so that I place my confidence and my boldness comes from that object? Well, chapter 2 and chapter 1 both talk about Christ, that Jesus is fully God, chapter 1, and chapter 2, that Jesus is fully man. That's my hope. And my hope together with that is chapter 2, verse 10, and bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. That is, that he's going to glorify me. He's going to bring me to a place of glory with the king of glory. And I myself, because of Christ, will be glorified. And even he's going to make atonement for my sins, chapter 2, verse 17, to make propitiation for the sins of his people. He's going to be able to help me when I'm tempted, verse 18 of chapter 2. He's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. That is my hope. That's my confidence. That is my glory. That's what I'm bold in. I have boldness with God and in this world, not because of how righteous and how spiritually strong I am, but because of chapter 2, verse 18 and 17, and chapter 2, verse 10, because of the work and person of Christ, then I have boldness. Then I have confidence. That is my glory. That is my hope. Christ is the hope of glory. I myself, I can think of it this way. Maybe you've ever seen Tarzan. And he can be kind of this macho guy. And he can beat his chest. Oh, you know, beat his chest. I'm strong. King of the jungle. Ah. So a godly man or a godly woman, their confident boast is they might beat their chest. Ah. I'm a sinner. Jesus is Lord. He's king. I am undone. I'm the sinner. Lord, make atonement for my sin like the publican and the Pharisee. The Pharisee said, look at all the things I've done. And the tax collector is, I have nothing. I'm a sinner. Lord, atone for my sin. That's our boast. That's our cry. My my confidence is not, look how spiritual I am. Look at all I've done this week. Look at all that I've done in my life. Look at all these different experiences that I've had with God. But rather, my confidence is one thing. Jesus Christ, his perfect life, his substitutionary death, and his victorious resurrection. Chapter 1, 
verses 1 through 3, his ascension to the right hand of God the Father on high. That is my boast. That's what I have to boast about before God. Jesus. And he alone is my salvation. This is what verse 6 is talking about. That there is this dogged determination that every day I'm going to cling to this to this gospel truth that my only hope is that Jesus Christ gives me his perfect righteousness by his death and resurrection on the cross. And even this faith that I have, he gave me the faith. So salvation is all by him. And so through ups and downs and lefts and rights, I'm going to trust him and walk with him daily. It's not hanging a cross around your neck or being baptized or going on a mission trip that demonstrates that you're saved. But rather this daily plotting of a belief that Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose again. By faith, I trust him and I'm forgiven. And I'm going to place my hope and my confidence in what he did for me as a sinner on the cross. Especially when I'm in the valley of death and everything in life seems dark and despairing. Especially then, I'm going to trust Jesus Christ. Because these believers here, remember, they are being persecuted by the state and persecuted by Judaistic religion. And some of their friends, some of their loved ones were in prison. And they were losing some of their possessions. They were suffering because of their faith. What would they do? What would they hope in? What would their glory be in? The Spirit of God is encouraging to place their hope in the King of glory. And that is Jesus Christ. Seeking to get closer to Jesus Christ because He is the Gospel has more value than if miraculously, out of nowhere, God caused a house or a car to appear for you, poof, and it just appeared for you. But that's an incredible experience. But just having that happen in your life doesn't demonstrate that you're saved. What does demonstrate that you're saved, that through this thick and thin of life, year after year after year, you glory and trust the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what this writer is saying, who's writing the inspired word of God. Now, second, this also involves resisting your own remaining stubborn unbelief. So we're saying that the third way to treat your heart is to prioritize this gospel walk as more important than great spiritual, religious experiences with God. Do you remember Jonathan Edwards? During his ministry hundreds of years ago, God brought a great awakening. It was the first great awakening in America, I believe. And there were tremendous movements of God through his preaching. And there were times the whole congregation would just be crying and weeping and, and people would be fainting. And even his his wife fainted, Sarah Edwards, and had experiences with God, external, outward, religious type of 
overcoming with the Spirit of God where people couldn't take their emotional conviction and would just boom, fall down. And so Jonathan Edwards wrote a book called Religious Affections. And he said, even about his wife, Sarah Edwards, what demonstrates true evangelical affection, that is people that are truly saved, is not so much these physical happenings of the body by conviction, even from the Spirit of God, but evangelical humility. This type of being humble before God and saying, yes, Lord. Yes, that's how you want me to believe. That's how you want me to live. Yes, Lord. That that is evidence of evangelical humility and not necessarily that you have so much faith you are healed or you're able by God to heal somebody else. That doesn't mean that you're spiritually mature or saved. But rather this, yes, Lord. By your grace, I'm saved. And by your grace, I'll follow you. Now we can say that even more specifically by saying that this involves resisting your own remaining stubborn unbelief. Don't harden your hearts. You see that in verse 7 and 8. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Because we have remaining sin, even as believers, though sin does not reign, sin does remain, that remaining sin, does that remaining sin in your heart, does it want to soften your heart? Does it want to make your heart soft and pliable? No, it wants your heart to be hard. Even as a believer, I have remaining sin, and that remaining sin doesn't want my heart to be tender toward God, it wants my heart to be hard toward God. So as a believer, then, I have to resist this Stubborn unbelief that comes from this sin that remains. So then, several points will help us to understand this and to bring this idea out of resisting your own remaining stubborn unbelief. First, it includes a serious response. Just look at the text. It says, today, if you hear his voice. Again, there is this attitude of right now. Today, today is the salvation. Right now, consider Jesus. Right now, cling on. Have you seen the man that climbed El Capitan without ropes? He climbed without anything. Have you seen that? He climbed all the way up, but without any other instruments. Think chalk in his fingers. When he was climbing that, could he take a break? Could he take a break and say, right now, I'm not going to hang on? No. He would fall to his death. That's the kind of intensity that's in this passage. Because it says, today, today is the day of your salvation. Today, when you hear God's word, you and I both need to respond. If we don't respond to God's word, then what happens to our heart? It will become hard. We need to allow God's, we need to allow God's word to tenderize our heart, but it does that by saying, yes, Lord, and we kiss the sun. Even if you keep looking at verse 7, there is this serious response. Because note how verse 7 begins. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, out in Scripture, when it wants to underscore that this is really, really important, it will say, the Holy Spirit says this. 
Now, also, though we won't take hardly any time, there is biblical truth here about the doctrine of Scripture. Because it says the Holy Spirit wrote Psalm 95. It's talking about inspiration. The Holy Spirit inspired Psalm 95 and inspired the whole Bible. Even this is present tense. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit, note it doesn't say said, but the Holy Spirit says. The Holy Spirit says. And implied here or two is the Holy Spirit, not just, therefore, it says says and not said. The Holy Spirit said to the people when Psalm 95 was written, that's talking about when the Israelites were in the wilderness wandering around, and both of those events are separated by hundreds of years, is speaking to the church, to the Hebrews, when this epistle was written, that 2,000 later is presently speaking to us too. So there's four or five levels of different peoples that this text is being transferred, its authority is being transferred through all these generations and placed upon us. So it is serious. It's serious because of this battle that we have in our hearts. But it's also serious too because again, it talks about your hardened heart. Verse 8, verse 10, God gets angry. And he says, you shall not enter my, my rest. Do you want God to get angry at you? Who wants to have the wrath of God upon them? Chapter 12, I think it's verse 5 of Hebrews, talks about God disciplines those he loves. Who wants to be disciplined by God? Do you want to be disciplined by God? I, I think I told you about my friend who Victor Bruce and I had to be part of a church discipline process with him. And when we confronted him, he said he knew he was in sin, but he didn't want to repent. And so we said, well, Hebrews 12.5 says that God's going to discipline you. And he said he knew, and he still chose not to repent. And a little, I think it was a year or two years after that, he died from brain cancer. Who wants to fall under the, the wrath and judgment of God? I, I would say most people do not want to fall underneath the wrath and, and judgment of God. But when you look at this text, it is serious that we don't allow ourselves to have a hard heart, but rather we tenderize our heart because, first of all, the text itself is saying, this is very important, the Holy Spirit right now is saying this to you today. Today you have to respond. Why? Because we don't want God's wrath or anger. Certainly as unbelievers, that would mean hell. But even as a believer, God can get upset with me. And because he loves me, I'm not going to be condemned that he may bring discomfort in my life to correct me and to put me back on the right path. Further, if you look at verse 11, it says, they shall not enter my rest. And this rest can be the, the Sabbath rest, right? Which was Saturday. It can be rest in terms of the land of Israel, which in Psalm 95, that's primarily what Psalm 95 verses 7 to 11 is talking about. And then that final eternal rest that we have in God because of Christ that we'll see in Hebrews chapter 4. So all these are great reasons why 
they and we need to respond when we talk about and discuss this idea of a hard heart. Because there can be, I think, and and many of us, this idea of, well, I would never have a hard heart. I love Jesus. But remaining sin can be deceitful. And slowly, if we're not careful, the heart could become hard. And if we know Christ, we're saved by Christ, the Spirit of God is going to keep us saved. But as believers, the means of that God uses to persevere us in the faith is that we seek to have our hearts be tender before God and not hard. And so we use these reasons here, these warnings, to encourage us. I talked about El Capitan a few moments ago. Have you ever climbed up the other side of Half Dome? Can you still do that? You know, it has a big rope thing. So, if you were climbing up there, and you're on the rope, and you're climbing up, and you get up there, and all of a sudden it starts to rain. Would you want to be on top of Half Dome? It starts to rain, pour. And you're, you're adventurous. You're pretty bold. So you say, I'm going to slip and slide time. I'm going to slip and slide down this, and I'm not even going to hang on. And your, your spouse or your wife or your father or your son, whoever says, no, don't do that. Hold on tight. Hold on tight. Hold on tight. What would you do? Would you be like, hey, it's okay. I don't have to hold on right. And, and the rain is just, pretty soon it's like a torrent that's coming down. It's like a, like if you're at Wet n Wild or Waterworks, whatever, like a water theme park, it's a big, huge water slide going down half to them. Would you not feel the how crucial, how critical it would be to hang on to that rope? Or would you be like, it's not that important? This passage here is saying that these Israelites not because of intellectual reasons, but because of heart reasons, they didn't understand that it was very critical for them to listen to God. But yet they wouldn't listen, and they slipped and they slid so far away that how many of the people that were delivered out of bondage from Egypt, how many of them went into the promised land? Only two. It was not because they didn't get it in their heads. It's because they didn't get it in in their hearts. That is, their confidence and their boast and their glory was not in Yahweh and walking with Yahweh himself. So it's very critical and very important. Even now, we say, do I have a hard heart? I don't want to have a hard heart. And so then, as we talk about really resisting this remaining sin... We want to get to the heart of the problem, and the heart of the problem is the heart. Resisting remaining sin of unbelief is a hard heart. The problem of a hard heart is the heart. You can see that in verse 7 and 8. Today, if you hear his voice, God speaking to you through his word, then do not let your heart get hard. 
It's our responsibility. Remember that the heart, it doesn't mean the muscle, and it doesn't mean just your emotions. It's that headquarters, that missing control of your inner man. It's affections, it's mind, it's will. It's, it's who you really are in the insides, your, your desires, your conscience, all of that. And by God's grace, it says here that we don't let that get hard before God. You're familiar with Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is deceitfully wicked and beyond cure. That's what our heart is like before we know Christ. But once we're saved, listen to the book of Ezekiel, when it talks about salvation, when it talks about being transformed and, and saved by, by the grace of God, this tremendous verse, Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26. Uh, you can start at verse 25. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. And I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. When we're saved, there is this transference where God takes away that stony heart of wickedness and gives us a new heart. But there can still be, though sin doesn't reign over us, there still can be some remaining sin. And it's this inner man, this inner person that needs to be worked on. That's why even Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. Or, sorry, Mark chapter 7. Matthew, it would be 15. But Mark chapter 7. Jesus talks about this very clearly. You can look at Mark chapter 7, verse 21. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. And so here in our passage, God is saying, using Psalm 95 that was written to the Israelites whose ancestors had rejected God, even after they had been delivered and redeemed physically, rejected God and they weren't able to go into the land of rest, God's using this Psalm that is written to Israel, saying now to these believers, don't be like that. In the heart, even when we are saved, Though our nature has changed, the nature of sin in us has not changed, and it still wants to harden the heart. And so that's where really the problem lies. We want to have a soft heart for Jesus. That's why you have so many passages in the New Testament which talk the way that Romans 12, 1 through 2, talk about the inner man. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship, then verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable. There's such a premium in the New Testament talking about the mind. That's why Philippians 4, 9 talks about setting your mind on the things that are true and right and good and, and honest and, and worthy. It's the inner man that must be nourished. 
The problem is the heart. Do not harden your heart. It's the idea of this stubborn, unbelieving heart. And that's even why later in this passage, verse 19, so we see they were not able to enter because of unbelief. If there was a type of not understanding, it was understanding, it was misunderstanding that arose from the heart. For example, in the New Testament, chapter 4, verse 18. I'm sorry, Ephesians, chapter 4, verse 18. Being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them. Okay, why were they ignorant? Because of the hardness of their heart. It's not that they had no idea, especially the Israelites that were just redeemed from Egypt. They knew and experienced and saw great and mighty works of God. And yet it says in verse 10 that they went astray in their heart and they didn't know God's path. You can remember after they had seen the Red Sea divide, after they had seen God conquer all the different, through his plagues and judgments, all the different gods of Egypt were conquered. Pharaoh was conquered. The army of Egypt, the world power at the time, was conquered. They saw the Red Sea divide. They saw the, the pillar of fire and the Shekinah glory of God. And they, probably, and they saw all the thunderous mountain, Mount Sinai, and all the shakings and they rejected God after right after that, and they formed a golden calf and worshipped it. Even if they had seen all these miracles of God. And even they had sang, is it in Exodus 14 and 15, that they had great music and they danced and clapped and praised God. And then they turned right around and rejected God and worshipped a golden calf that they made. Why? It's not so much great miracles that transforms the heart, but the good news, the gospel, the truth that we surrender to and say, yes, Jesus. So then, specifically, just quickly, when you look at this passage, you can see these problems. There was this attentiveness this lack of attention of, God, what do you want me to do? You can see they hardened their heart because they didn't listen, it says in verse 7. They didn't hear his voice. Well, what, what does that mean? Well, it's like now or anytime you hear a sermon or somebody talking, you can hear the words, but that doesn't mean you are listening necessarily to do book of James and throughout the Bible there is in book of Deuteronomy and other places especially in Hebrew the idea of, of listening can also be the part of the range of meanings part of that vocabulary the semantic domain of hearing is hearing to do to obey we can often just be entertained by sermons just hearing words go through our head and so we need to instruct ourselves, even now, Lord, what do I need to do? What do I need to believe? How do I need to feel? What do I need to change in my life? I need to be able to truly hear it in my soul so that my heart doesn't get hard. 
Also, then secondly, when you look at this text, talking about specifically about what a hard heart does or what a hard heart looks like. First, a hard heart doesn't listen to do. It just listens. But secondly, this hard heart doesn't trust in his good promises. You can see here, and again in this passage, they provoked me in the day of trial and the wilderness where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. This is speaking of two different, probably two different situations. One was when they were thirsty and they wanted water and they complained. And so water, God through Moses brought water from the rock. The other situation was when all the spies were sent into the land and they came back and ten said, we can't do it. We can't go into the promised land. And only Joshua and Caleb said, yes, we can. But both of these situations, God says that rather than trusting me and my promises, you were testing me. Rather than trusting God's promises, you can read Numbers 14 and Exodus 17 on your own. These Israelites were testing God's promises rather than trusting God's promises. Which was exemplified by them complaining. God's word said, go into the promised land. They said, no, it's too big, we can't do it. And then before that, God had already given manna, he had already given quail, he had already provided for them so much, and then yet they were like, we're, we're, we're going to die out here, we're going to die. God, where are you? Is God still with us? That's in Exodus 17. They were testing God and not trusting his promises. And then when you keep looking at verse 9, we're saying, why does it look like to have a hard heart? It's that when you're testing God, you're, you have ingratitude and you're always complaining because you're, you're not really trusting his promises. You, you don't even, though you hear it, you don't see that in your life. And you're not listening to God's word to do. But then even, even thirdly, there is this type of preoccupation that you're okay because of privilege and things that you see God doing. It talks about here, verse 9, and saw my works for 40 years. But yet they go astray in their heart and they don't know my path. They hear the word, but they're not paying attention to it. And so they take their own path. And then they end up then not really trusting the promises because they really weren't internalizing the word of God. But yet at the same time, they experienced manna and quail and all these different miracles that God through Moses was doing. But yet they didn't experience God himself. Can a person experience miracles of God and yet not experience God? That's what was happening to these Israelites. Remaining sin is like grima warm tongue. Do you, do you know warm tongue? Grima warm tongue? So he was a, a false advisor to Saruman and, and the two towers. And he sowed lies to Saruman. Not Saruman. Theoden. Sowed lies. And so Theoden was deceived. That's what remaining sin will do in our hearts. Is it will 
tell us lies about God, about life. And if we're not careful, though a believer's heart can't get fully hard, our hearts can get less soft. And our hearts will get less soft if we don't listen to do, if we're complaining about God's promises and seeking to, to test God instead of, Lord, I, I trust your promises. Not Are they true? Is it, Lord, I, I know they're true. I'm going to trust you. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. Lord, I trust you. I'm placing you first, Lord. And to where we're not just hungry for signs and and miracles of God, but we're hungry for God himself. We want God. We want the gospel. We want Christ. And then just quickly, taking a a solution, and I'm not going to go in depth to this, but just to be sure that we don't have a hard heart. Those are ways that a hard heart looks like. We need to know what it looks like and we're going to see in the rest of this section how to how to work against this hard heart. But just very briefly, some ideas here. Taking the solution on how not to have a hard heart. First, repent and ask for cleansing. Ask God to give you a soft and humble heart. Psalm 51, verse 10. You're familiar with Psalm 51, verse 10. I believe we even sing this, or we have sung it many times. Psalm 51, verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. God, give me a clean heart. Lord, forgive me. Why? Again, because our boast and our confidence is not in external, even spiritual, religious things that are events that we're part of. But rather... I'm a sinner, and I need Jesus. I need Jesus more than anybody else. Lord, please forgive me. Thank you, Lord. Lord, forgive me. And then we did mention this second, the solution to not have a hard heart is that when we hear the word, that we're like James 2. James 2, right? The second half of James chapter 2. Faith works. Lord, I hear a sermon. What would you want me to do? Lord, what attitude or actions can I change? Uh, number three is to give thanks. You see in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 to 11, there's not a word of thanks. They went astray in their hearts. They got under the wrath of God. They provoked God because they were testing him. They weren't thanking him. They were testing him. We want to thank God. First Thessalonians 5.18, right? Always be breathing thankfulness. We always want to be praying, but together with that, we always want to be rejoicing always, but giving thanks continuously. And then finally, take a step of of trust. Walk by faith. Caleb and Joshua took a step of faith. Out of all the millions of people, apparently, that were delivered out of bondage, it was these two men that just took a step of faith and said, not, we have the power, we have the strength, 
I'm so smart. I'm so capable. I was the assistant to Moses. I can do it. But rather they said, Yahweh is able. God is able. God will keep his promises. Can we take this step of faith? Can we take a, an obedient step? Not because we're able. Because again, we're, we're not like Tarzan saying, I'm so great, I'm so strong, I'm so spiritual. Look at all that I've done and all that I will do. Look at all these great privileges I've had. I'm able, but rather we are, God is able, Jesus is able, and he can do it through me. By his grace, by his grace only am I able. And so we take steps of faith like that. How do we keep our hearts from growing hard? Today, even you can go to Google, and you know, there's all kinds of different heart treatments. All kinds of different heart treatments. You know, you can go the traditional synthetic medical, all kinds of different heart treatments. You can go natural. Even if you decide to go natural heart treatments, then there's, there's all kinds of different natural treatments you can do. And everybody has all their opinions on what can really help your physical heart. Spiritually, what can you do about your heart? Well, this passage has been telling us this is what we can do about our heart. Remember who we are in Jesus. Remember who Jesus is. And then we try to be sure that every day we are just taking steps, not looking for big, huge, necessarily big, huge miracles from God, but rather we're not clinging on to those things. God can do what God wants to do. God can do the greatest miracle ever. What we want to do, though, is to know Jesus and to glorify him and to glory in him. And when we do that, that keeps our heart soft. And when our heart is soft before God, then you'll never drift away. Prioritizing a gospel walk with God is better than some type of great religious external experience. Prioritizing the gospel and your heart will keep your heart soft. It is a tenderizer. If you don't want to drift away from God, then always stay close to the gospel. Again, slogging out daily, plotting, holding on to who Jesus is. And that is actually a great miracle by God's grace. Father, I pray you would bless your word. Lord, I pray that all of us would prioritize this daily dependence upon the gospel, not so much looking for great wonders and great signs. And Lord, it'd be great if you did, if you revived the whole land. But Lord, the priority is me getting close to Jesus and each individual here getting close to Jesus. And I pray that you would work that in each person's heart, Lord. Lord, we give you praise and we thank you for the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.